Welcome to Reinventing Solidarity, a podcast of the journal New Labor Forum and the School of Labor and Urban Studies at the City University of New York. My name is Paula Finn, podcast host and editor of New Labor Forum. Reinventing Solidarity features scholars, activists, and artists on the front lines of movements for social and economic justice. We ask the essential and often provocative questions about race, class, gender, and the role of organized labor and social justice organizations in the work of creating a radically different world, a world with solidarity, equality, and sustainability at its heart. Barely one week into the Biden administration, CUNY faculty member and New Labor Forum consulting editor Joshua Freeman led a virtual forum titled Seismic Shifts, Organized Labor and COVID's Impact on the Economy. This episode of Reinventing Solidarity features that discussion with Freeman interviewing Heidi Scherholz, senior economist and director of policy at the Economic Policy Institute, and Mark Levinson, chief economist at the Service Employees International Union. Among other things, they examine the extent to which the current fiscal crisis, more than others of the past half century or so, have ravaged workers at the very bottom of the economy. Josh, we're glad to have you on the podcast. Thanks, Paula. It was a fascinating discussion. Looking back at the last recession, back in 2008, 2009, when the Obama administration came in, I think many people in labor and many progressives see it as a missed opportunity, as a time when the federal government used its resources to bail out the financial sector and the wealthy, left a lot of people struggling and failed to address the real structural problems in the economy. And Joe Biden, of course, was very much part of that effort, supervising the recovery in the Obama administration. So when Joe Biden won the nomination and then the presidency, many people in labor were very uncertain about what to expect and and very tentative in, in, in their hopes. So it's really fascinating to hear two extremely well-informed economists with deep ties to labor to talk about first, you know, what it is that labor wants, but also their assessment of, so far anyway, how is the Biden administration doing and and how is it doing things differently than we saw back the last time we were facing a somewhat similar situation? Yeah, as I was actually quite surprised by the level of optimism that both of them expressed concerning efforts of the Biden administration to address not only the ravages of COVID, but also longer term aspects of the deep economic injustice. I found that surprising. I I imagine you might have too. I, I did. And what is interesting is that their read comes not from a kind of headline reading approach, but really a kind of deep knowledge of what's going on a bit beneath the surface in the still forming Biden administration in terms of both personnel and in terms of policy. I felt, you know, it was one of those conversations from which I learned a great deal. And I'm sure our listeners will too. Right, Josh. Now let's let's take a listen. I thought I would start 
with a question primarily aimed at Heidi, but, but Morgan, Heidi, please feel free to jump in on any of these questions whenever you feel like it. But Heidi, how is this recession different from our last one, you know, which began in 2008, just before President Obama was elected? This time around, who's been hardest hit in terms of job loss and income loss? What are the particular dynamics of, of, of the recession we're living through right now? Thank you. And I'll just start by saying thank you. I'm absolutely honored to be here. This is a wonderful discussion to be having right now. I mean, all the time, but also particularly right now. This recession was very different than recessions that we've had in the past. Uh, it, like as far as who, I mean, it's different in a million ways, but as far as who gets, has gotten hit, hit the hardest, it's been particularly different. So just to step back to think about what normally happens, Typically in recessions, the first workers you see getting hit are construction workers, manufacturing workers. So they're not the lowest paid workers and they tend to be disproportionately men right out of the gate. So everyone, even in normal recessions, men and women both lose jobs. People at all wage levels lose jobs, but there's, but there's not, there is not typically a super disproportionate hit at the very low end and men are typically hit harder. That's not what we saw at all in this recession. This recession, the way it happened with shutting down basically huge swaths of the leisure and hospitality sector, restaurants, bars, hotels, anything related to tourism, also personal services in brick and mortar retail, those kinds of industries are disproportionately low wage industries. So this recession just slammed low-wage workers. They're also disproportionately women and people of color. So we've seen a women and people of color and low-wage workers take a huge hit in this recession. And I think to the bottom line is all recessions exacerbate existing inequalities, but this recession is doing that more than we've ever seen before. Maybe I could start, uh, maybe Mark or, or Heidi, from the point of view of workers and, and, and unions, as the new administration is taking power, what are the most pressing economic issues? You know, what are the unions labor looking for from the new administration? Well, there's so much, there's so much that, that needs to be done. It, it's, it's, um, it's kind of daunting and almost overwhelming. But immediately, we have to offer support for you know, workers who have just lost their livelihoods. And we started out, you know, when we shut down the economy, when the CARES Act passed with the $600 extra for unemployment insurance, you know, almost a $3 trillion. It was a, you know, we actually initially threw a lot of money at this. We did it we, we have a very inadequate system to provide relief, to, to try and provide relief through an unemployment insurance system, which was not really set up to deal with this problem at this scale. Uh, you know, a lot of people fall through the cracks and we, we can, you know, talk about that more. But initially, we, initially we did a, a pretty good job of supporting people, although millions still fell, fell through the, the cracks. That didn't last long enough that you know those those comprehensive provisions fired you know after a few months and then you saw 
you know, the situation in terms of social needs and, and hunger and eviction, you know, was, was getting much worse. Now, then the economy started to bounce back, but you still had enormous, enormous problems. So, so the first thing that has to be done, we need to support people who have been impacted by the recession through increased unemployment, you know, through direct payments, through, you know, what, whatever means necessary. That, that's the first immediate, you know, need. We then have to reconstruct uh, or, or begin to reconstruct the American economy. But before we get to that, I don't know, maybe Heidi wants to add something on the um, immediate needs. No, I, I mean, we could go down the list of priorities, but I couldn't agree more. Like the key challenge is the virus and the, and what people are suffering as a result of that in the labor market. And so getting in control of the virus, everything that can be done to invest in COVID measures and particularly vaccine distribution, that's core. And then in the meantime, until we get that vaccine widely distributed, making sure people have the relief that they need. That's just, that's just crucial. Mark, when you talked about the difference in the recovery and how it's just brutal for people at the bottom, it, it um, triggered this thing, this thought that I had about something that was um, an analysis that Lyle Brainerd who's a Federal Reserve governor did, she, a couple of weeks ago, she announced that unemployment for the bottom quartile of workers is probably above 20%. When we talk about the overall unemployment rate at 6.7%, it just masks huge disparities for people at different parts of the wage distribution. So I, that's just, that number hit me. And so I just wanted to make sure it got highlighted. Let's get back to how we could get some of the things you were talking about done and what role labor might play in that. But, but, but let's also maybe before we do that, talk about the longer term picture. You know, I mean, let's be optimistic for a second and say that some sort of relief program gets through fairly quickly. Nonetheless, you know, the, the economy is, is in pretty bad shape. And you know, it, at least for me, I think for other people, I'm a bit haunted by the experience of the last big recession uh, when the Obama administration came in it did launch a, a, a pretty big recovery program. It was actually overseen, of course, by the then Vice President, Joe Biden, that disproportionately aided the financial sector and the wealthy. And you know, it took years and years for the situation of working class Americans to begin to improve. Besides the human toll, of course, there was a huge political toll for that. What could the federal government do to revive the economy differently this time? So that beyond a, a, just immediate relief, you know, that the primary beneficiaries are not the well-off and the financial sector, but more ordinary working folk. From labor's perspective, the single most important thing we have to do to reconstruct the American economy is to shift power relations in the economy. We have to empower workers. Workers have to be empowered to capture their just share of a growing economy. That you know hasn't happened in decades, and we're and we're you know reaping the consequences of that now. Now, what does that mean? And there's a there's an obvious labor law reform part of this, but there's also an economic policy part of this. So, for example, I think one of the top economic priorities has to be full employment. The goal of economic policy should be a job for everyone who wants a job. That's the number one economic policy above the deficit, 
above above anything else, full employment. When workers are fully employed, that empowers workers. They have choices. If the boss is abusive, they can go somewhere else. It empower, it, 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 in, in tight labor markets, wages rise. In addition to that, we have to make it possible for unions to grow. The fact is, anyone in, you know, who's looked at this question carefully knows, in the United States, workers do not have the effective right to form a union. That has to change. Now, and, and you know, to their credit, Biden the other day said it is the policy of the American government to promote unionization. This hasn't been said by a U.S. president since Roosevelt. Obama never said it. Clinton never said it. I mean, this is extremely important. Now, they have to act on it. The politics are tricky. We have razor-thin majorities in Congress, but there's, there's nothing more important to reconstruct this economy than empower American workers. That means increasing unionization. So the, the American Relief and Recovery Act of 2009, ARA, that was the big stimulus bill, and it doesn't look big compared to what we're doing now, which is great for us now. It was bad then. But that stimulus bill wasn't terrible. You know, like it increased unemployment insurance. It had aid to state and local governments. Like it did things to help regular people. The problem was it was not nearly enough. And then Congress turned to austerity in 2010 when the unemployment rate was still over 9%. It was outrageous. The, the pulling back, not doing what we could do to actually boost the economy, that was the thing that made the recovery so weak, take so long, lead to completely needless suffering for millions and millions of people who stayed out of work for a really long time. I mean, just to put one number on that, we estimate that in the af aftermath of the Great Recession, Congress not doing enough to support state and local governments so that state and local governments had to turn to austerity because they'd seen big drops in their revenues. The federal government not doing enough aid there delayed recovery from the Great Recession by over four years. It's just this remarkable, huge mistake that we made. It does look like we have learned that lesson to some extent. We're doing more. The Biden administration is proposing a lot more. That, that, that's, a, that's really good news. How much can the, Trump, the Biden administration address both the changes that the Trump administration put in place, overtime rules, NLRB decisions, a thousand things, and, and can it go beyond where, you know, is the best we can do just get back to where we were four years ago? Or can we actually move forward given the political situation in Congress? That is the question of the hour, right? Because we know that so much can, will be happening through the regulatory process. So there is a lot that can be done. The Biden administration, is, as you said, they're already putting out executive orders showing what will be done. So one of the, a couple of the key things, and it touches on some of your points, that they, the couple of the key EOs that, that they put out so far, one of them was directing the Department of Labor, the OSHA, the Office of Safety and Health Administration at the Department of Labor to put in place an emergency temporary standard to protect workers from COVID. That will be super important to not just the workers who will be safer, but also to a successful reopening of the economy. 
the law gives OSHA the power to put in an emergency standard when there is a new threat to workers. The Trump administration never felt that the that COVID actually rose to the level of a new enough or a big enough threat to workers that they had to put in an emergency standard. So there is nothing really in place that protects workers from the specific threat of COVID. So the administration doing that will make a huge difference. Another thing that they're that they have announced that is related to wanting to go farther than not, you know, like not just return to where we were in January of 2017, is they have proposed in or put an EO to have the Labor Department work on increasing the federal, the minimum wage for workers on federal contracts to $15 an hour. The, the executive branch can't increase the overall minimum wage that has to go through Congress, but they can increase the minimum wage for workers who are on federal contracts. Obama actually did this. In 2014, they published a rule that increased the minimum wage for, for workers on federal contracts to 1010. That was that was sort of where the social and political context of the minimum wage was at that time. It's totally different now. One of the reasons it's totally different is that the economics profession has changed. There's now there's now no kind of consensus that a $15 minimum wage would cause any substantial job loss. It just there's been a whole shift. And now the Biden administration is has put out an EO that they want to increase the minimum wage for federal contractors to 15. So it, I do see that and some other signals that there really is interest, not just undoing what Trump did, but going farther to meet this moment. And there's a lot that needs to be done, as Mark said. Mark, maybe you could add to that. What about on the right to organize? I mean, there's such a, a history of failure at labor law reform, even with much stronger democratic majorities than we have now. You go all the way back to Lyndon Johnson and new administrations come in, high hopes, oh yes, oh yes, oh yes. And, and, and time, it, it doesn't happen. And you know, given the current configuration, it seems really hard to imagine labor law reform soon. So is there anything administratively the Biden administration can do? Well, I mean, there is a there is a terrible history of failure on on labor law reform, and it's not clear the politics are there. To, there is a, a very you know comprehensive proposal, the Pro Act, which would probably be the most comprehensive labor law reform since the '40s. We've also been pushing the idea of sectoral bargaining, which is not in the Pro Act, but which we think you know the government, states, and the government can play a role in getting industries, getting companies to sit down with, you know, unions and worker representatives to bargain in for an entire sector, which would be an important mechanism to raise wages. But ultimately, there's, there's, we have to change labor law. And even if the politics aren't there now, we, we have to make the case, the Democrats have to make this a priority in the Obama years, a, a decision was made to prioritize health care over labor law reform. Maybe that was the right decision. Maybe it wasn't. But we have to make a run at it. It's just, it's, it's that important. Just to underscore some of the urgency, the, the December $900 billion COVID relief bill that extended some of the, the pandemic unemployment insurance provisions those expire in the middle of March. 
And that's like, we're gonna blink our eyes and it's gonna be the middle of March. And if Congress hasn't increased those extensions, millions of people will be thrown off of UI. We know that the virus, virus will still be rapid to that point. The labor market will still be weak. So there is a, a, a one key deadline. They have to make sure that nobody gets thrown off or has to deal with the anxiety of thinking they're gonna throw, get thrown off in the middle of March. You, you, they sort of need to get it going by the middle of February, which is just around the corner. You know, it, it, it's interesting because you, you know, one way to, to look at, at this is that we've kind of had an ad hoc experiment in a different unemployment system in terms of both covering self-employed and, and gig workers and other people who would normally exclude it and in terms of the benefit level. You know, I mean, in, 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 uh, in the spring, you know, some people were denouncing unemployment because, you know, people were making more money on unemployment than they were on their, had been on their jobs, which is, you know, a measure of how crummy their jobs had been. God forbid. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, we had kind of living wage unemployment system, and we also had a kind of experiment, guaranteed, you know, income with the, these lump sum payments, you know. I mean, does this have implications for where we should, you know, what have been their effects? I guess that's the first question. And then should this be the new normal? We actually, with the CARES Act, we actually implemented a very progressive social safety net system. It was remarkable. It made a huge difference. You can, we're, you know, we're starting to be able to get data out from that period that we can analyze. But one of the things is in the second quarter, when we saw millions and millions and millions of people losing their jobs, poverty actually went down. It's just this huge testament to what we did to, to make sure that people were okay during that period. It was, it alleviated a huge amount of suffering. Republicans in the Senate allowed the, like the, a couple of things to expire at the end of July, like the extra $600 in unemployment insurance benefits. So it became much less good after that. But with the re-upping of, of things in December, it's, it's, not quite as good as it was originally, but it's it's better. We we really have done remarkable things. It's not perfect. Like when I look at the CARES Act, I can also list the things that are problematic about it. But overall, it really did provide just crucial relief at an extremely difficult time for working families. And it did show us that there's so much that we can do getting people money actually works and we can get it to them. So for example, this increasing, expanding eligibility for unemployment insurance to self-employed workers, it has gotten relief to millions and millions of people during this time. It has, it's been bumpy. Like there's been difficulty in rolling it out. There's been problems in the system, but with the proper investment in those systems, what we have shown now is that we can do this. And so, I, I mean, those programs are set to expire, but I, I do think there is definitely renewed energy to, to, to sh sh this has been a really clear example of how much good that sort of thing can do and to, to help make sure we don't lose those lessons when this pandemic is over. What, what, what Heidi said is, is really important. I mean, this is the dirty little secret that, you know, the right, would, would, doesn't want people to understand. I mean, when you think about it, in the midst of the worst economic crisis in a century, for a period, poverty went down because of social policy. And, and, and so it would be so easy, so easy in, quote, more normal times to eliminate poverty. 
the kind of brief success of the CARES Act shows that. And so properly constructed policy, comprehensive policy works. You know, it's not that difficult. Just one, one other thing here. There's an interesting contrast to what happened when you look at the response to the crisis in the U.S. compared to Europe. You know, Europe didn't do that great either. But one big difference, unemployment in, in Europe did not increase the way it did in the U.S. Because those countries essentially supported workers in their jobs. They, they subsidized businesses to stay alive and to pay their workers. So they, essentially, they were keeping the structure of their economy intact. Here, we, we had a very different model. We, we let millions of businesses die, workers are unemployed, and then we try and support them through unemployment insurance. There, at least in large part, much more so than here, they kept the structure of the, of the economy intact, kind of realizing this is not a permanent change. This is a however long it's going to last, there's going to be a, a beginning, a middle, and an end to, to COVID. And there, there was something to be said for keeping the economy intact. But there was a very interesting difference in approach than what was followed in the U.S. Last week, the BLS released the data on union membership for last year. It, it kind of got lost, I think, in the shuffle, given how many a million other things going on last week. But you wrote a really nice uh, short little article that I found uh, both really enlightening and, and I was very surprised by the data that you discussed. Could you just sort of fill us in a little bit about what happened last year and, and, and what you think the significance is? One overarching thing was 2020 was a terrible year for union members and non-union members alike. There was massive job loss in 2020. But one key thing is there was less job loss amongst union workers than non-union workers. So if you look at the unionization rate, it went up. It went up non-trivially. It went up by half a percentage point. So it was very strange, the, not strange, but it was an interesting dynamic that we saw. So this question of, okay, what made that happen? Why did, why did union workers see less job loss than non-union workers. I did a little decomposition that breaks down that effect into two different parts. So one part is unions are actually really good at protecting jobs. People, unions worked with employers to negotiate furloughs, to negotiate work sharing agreements, that sort of thing. So that's one key thing that union workers saw less job loss than non-union workers in the same industry. That accounted for about half of the increase in the unionization rate. The other half was more of a mechanical thing. It, I, I refer to it as the pandemic composition effect. It was the result of the fact that industries that saw a ton of job loss were low union industries. Leisure hospitality, it just got slammed in this recession. They have, that industry has very low unionization rates. And then on the, on the flip side, some very high or relatively high union industries didn't see as much job loss. And a key one there is the public sector. And I just want to be clear, the public sector lost a lot of jobs in the downturn. It was, and, and we need state and local aid. Like I don't want to act like the public sector is fine, but the public sector lost fewer jobs than the private sector, which is a typical thing we see in recessions. Public sector 
is relatively highly unionized. And so that just having that shift from lower union industries to higher union industries, just because of where the job loss was, that made up about half of that increase in, in unionization rates. So it was both things, but the upshot is union workers, everyone saw job loss in, in 2020, but union workers saw less job loss than non-union workers. It was still very startling to see the union, I guess it's the percentage of workers represented by a union jump by half a point. I don't remember the last time we've seen a half point increase. You have to go, so, you know, thank you for explaining why. And I guess it doesn't necessarily, it, well, in some ways it does reflect the strength of the union movement in other ways, it, it, it doesn't. I think we are almost out of time. You, I, let me just ask either of you, we covered a lot of ground, there's so much more we could cover, but any final thoughts you wanna throw in? I'll, I'll just say the crisis is, is, is so severe. We've been through an incredibly traumatic political experience. Biden administration, I have to say, the appointments in the economic and labor area have been superb. I think it's fair to say the appointments in the economic and labor area would be very similar to what they were if we had a Bernie Sanders or an Elizabeth Warren presidency. And I think that speaks to the strength of the movements that were behind those candidacies. We have to keep pressing, but, but they're off to a, a good start. I think we've learned a lot of mistakes from the past, but we just have so much to do. I, I'll just echo that. And I'm not always the most optimistic person on, on what, what, what will happen with policy, but this administration is giving me every reason to be optimistic. The, the relief and recovery package, the 1.9 trillion that Biden proposed, that is a package at the scale of the problem. It is just a remarkable shift from where we've been in the past. So it, Mark made this point earlier and it's very much worth emphasizing we all have to keep pushing. We have to demand that they follow through with the with the things that they have put on the table so far, but they're on the table and that's that's incredibly important. Well, on, on, on these, well, I actually have to call unusually optimistic notes, you know, <laughs> given the experiences we've all been going through, not just in the past year, but in the past decade. I would like to thank very much Mark Levinson, Heidi Shearholtz for joining us in what I think has been just a terrific discussion. Issues like those raised in today's podcast are taken up in classroom discussions at the School of Labor and Urban Studies, where our preeminent faculty and engaged and diverse student body grapple with the most pressing challenges confronting organized labor and working class communities. For more information about the school, visit slu.cuny.edu. To learn more about the podcast and listen to other episodes, visit slu.cuny.edu slash podcast. And to subscribe to New Labor Forum or sign up for our free monthly newsletter, visit newlaborforum.cuny.edu.